Hello, and my name is Pete Rushmer, and I'm your host today of A Half Dozen Things podcast. A Half Dozen Things is a podcast for business owners just like you. Whether you're an underdog hungry for success, or you're already smashing it, but want to continue to level up, we are here each week for you to get insight and learning from the very best in the business. No fluff, no BS, and no self-proclaimed gurus talking about how easy business or life is. Yeah, red lights rolling. Red lights rolling and we're recording. Um, Alison, Alison, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Um, I'm really, really pleased uh, that you've been able to join me. And uh, I'm really keeping my fingers crossed because I'm recording at home today. Uh, Maggie, my wife, she's out busy first aid training this week. And I'm kind of shuffling around, making sure the kids get sorted for school and that kind of thing. But my dogs have been an absolute nightmare all day today. <laughs> I've got I've got two little chihuahuas that literally haven't stopped barking. But at the moment, they look to be in the sun, lying down. So hopefully everything's just going to be quiet. Fingers crossed. And I think it, it looks dogs, like... I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think yeah. the dogs, the smaller they are, the more trouble they are generally. That's really. Absolutely. If if small if small dog syndrome was such a thing, these guys <laughs> have got, these these two have got it. Um, so I picked up that you've got a big, big uh, frame for Man United uh, uh, on your left shoulder there. And uh, but it turns out you're not you're not a United fan, Alison. I couldn't be less of a United fan. Although I am a United <laughs> fan, but I'm a Leeds United fan. This is somebody else's office that I'm using, so perhaps I should have blurred that out so I don't give the, yeah, the wrong impression. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, Alison, we met recently at the we, we were at a, a co at a uh, meeting for the Chartered Institute for the Safety Forum, we uh, which I was which I was uh, kindly invited to visit. And um, obviously, we've had a bit of a catch up from there. And I thought you'd be a fantastic guest to have on the podcast to talk about uh, Matrix IQ, yep. not IG. I not typoed IG. that this morning. <laughs> I typoed that this morning, half asleep, right? Matrix IG, uh, which uh, which absolutely is incorrect. And obviously, drive um, drive with a double I as well. And we'll have a bit of a chat through those shortly. Um, we met at the Safety Forum. How long have you been doing the, the Chartered Institute Safety Forum, Alison? It's been been a while, I think, hasn't it? It's been a long time, probably about seven years now. I've been part of the Safety yeah. Forum um, amongst various other sort of committees. But um, I really enjoy that one because we we've, there's a lot of tangible things we can do to kind of help people. So, um, yeah, it's a really good forum. It's It's a good mix of people on it as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So and obviously we're going to be talking a bit more about what you do and and about the the product that, that drive is and that kind of thing. But I think, first of all, is it OK just for the listeners, if you are you happy to just introduce yourself and just sort of let people know, because you've been you've been in and around the fleet and transport sector for, for a number of years now with a lot of experience, particularly from a safety point of view as well. I have, yeah, I think um, too many years. I try to forget some of those years. Um, but I started in health, safety, environment and quality. So that was my background. Um, and I was group HCQ manager at Enterprise, who are a very big utility company now, part of Amy. Um, and I was really happy there. We've got a really good safety record. We're winning Rossborough Awards, President's Awards. And I just happened to sit down one day. I'd probably been there about seven years with the fleet manager. We started talking about how many on-road collisions we had, how many near misses we had, and it absolutely terrified me because the same gravitas wasn't given to road safety as it was to on-site safety. 
which turns out was is right across the board in most companies that you deal with. Uh, and from that day, I thought, mm, I think I need to, to go back and do some more qualifications. So I did my international transport manager CPC and then kind of moved much more into that world of safety. Um, and I've worked with some really big fleets. So obviously there was Enterprise. I worked with Morrison Utilities, Arriva, which was um, different transport, completely different angle to it, but spent about eight years at Skanska. So a big construction, civil engineering, utility company. And um, I was lucky enough to win quite a number of awards while we were there for Circus Fleet, just by sort of concentrating on that. So when a driver gets in a vehicle, he started work, it's a work activity, and then putting all the kind of health safety things in place by acknowledging that. Um, and I think that's, you know, the big one for me, it's that first acknowledgement that actually this is part of health and safety. It's not a separate issue. It's just an issue that is easy to go, oh, that's fleet's problem or, oh, that's health and safety's problem. And then nobody deals with it, which does happen. So, yeah, so I have been involved a long time um, and I like to get involved in various sort of committees and things because I think we've got a lot of a lot of people out there who either don't have the skills or just don't have the resource. So I think it's really good if we can we can help people and kind of pass on some um, some things that work, also some things that don't, which, you know, I've tried things that haven't worked. And I think that's as important sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's, it's really timely we have this conversation. It was literally uh, yesterday I was recording another podcast with a couple of colleagues and we were talking about how in the transport and fleet sector, we're just so focused on compliance and yeah. making sure that things are compliant rather than are they actually safe, which kind of leads me on to having such a love for, you know, what we were talking about the other day when uh, sort of we first had a chat and we talked about the podcast and and uh, drive as well. And I think it's just absolutely fantastic service that, that you're offering. So um, first first question, just to sort of lead in. What, why, why are you so passionate about road safety? What, what, what's so important for you? I think the fact that, you know, I think last year it was about 127,000 people were killed on the roads. Uh, you know, if you, and if you look globally, you're looking at like huge numbers and killed and serious injured. There's like loads and loads of people, but we don't react to it the same as we react to on-site safety. So if I if I was in a company and somebody had two deaths from fall from heights, absolutely 100% that there would be massive investigation. We would have to answer to uh, the HSE, but we don't do that on the roads. And yet every single person who's injured or killed on the road, there's a massive ripple effect from colleagues, the workplace, family and friends. Uh, and I think the other thing that, really we have to accept and it's people don't always accept this they're nearly nearly a hundred percent of those are avoidable mm -hmm. and i think you know it's interesting you mentioned compliance because compliance yes absolutely really important but it's that you know it's very rarely mechanical the reason for collisions it's that pink wobbly thing behind the wheel that nobody really seems to have much control over that causes all these collisions and crashes. Um, so I just think it's, you know, it's something that if you run vehicles, you have a responsibility. And, I, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've got a fleet of 10 or a fleet of, you know, some of the fleets we deal with have got 10,000 plus vehicles in them. 
just as important that we look at those small fleets and big fleets exactly the same way as we look at every other in part of safety. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think people like like you say. I think the thing is is health and safety. We worry uh, about a site, a particular site, and we talk about the safety of the employees and the impact it can have on the public. Yet. You know, on the roads every day, we've got people driving for it. We've got yeah. members of the public. We've got pedestrians, and um, it's a, a vital, a vital thing. And and like, like you said, I think the statistic is something like one person a week or something in the UK alone loses their life whilst driving for work, which is, you know, a statistic we really need to work on. Um, yeah. You know, we, we need to work on the, as an industry. The big, sorry, the bigger figure, which is the KSI, the killed and seriously injured. By serious injury, that's a life-changing injury. So, yeah. you know, it's not just that somebody's backed into a, a pole or backed into a, a bollard. These are people who have had, you know, amputations. Some people have just been, you know, had spinal injury. And we've got to keep in mind that those are just as important, you know, and, and for families, there can be a, an awful lot of long-term stress and long-term struggle involved in those sort of things. So, yeah, we definitely need to do it. And I think we're not aware of how many work-related collisions we have because I don't think it's the information, the data is probably collected properly because I think in a lot of car collisions, nobody asks, is this a work journey? And yet mm. there are thousands and thousands of company cars on the road every day having some of them having collisions who's collecting that data you know if it's a van it's easy to see it's a work related collision but you you i don't believe that the figure is as low as we think it is yeah yeah no that makes total sense we've got a we've got an issue from a reporting point of view haven't we in a data data collection point of view so yeah. i didn't i didn't ask this question when we've prepped this i'm just gonna throw, throw a little one out there but <laughs> i thought it'd be a nice way of framing before we go into talking about yeah. what, what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and also you know I'm, I'm acutely aware of like some of the activities you do in the part-time and it 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 really grabbed me when we first spoke that you're clearly very purpose-driven so, and I just wanted to just talk a bit about yeah. sort of your your motivation as well, if that's okay. Because I was just listening to Simon Sinek the other day, and uh, you know he he writes the book Start with Why and all of those kinds of things. And there's a lot of people in the industry who, um, you know, are, are, are that they're driven, pardon the pun, by various different things. But it's very clear for me, or it felt for me, that you're quite purpose driven around making sure that we're having an impact on on people. Yeah, is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody likes to to pay for repair and maintenance and things on vehicles following a collision, but they can be repaired, you know, and if they're written off, they are insured. People are my absolute and utter focus. It's about it. That's my passion. That's what drives me. You know, I do a lot of work with Break the Road Safety Charity um, and they, you know, it you don't need to talk to many people there to understand the impact on families that every single crash on the roads have. So for me, yeah, my absolute drive, and I am really, really passionate about it, and I can be a real anorak. Um, you know, it's very difficult stopping me talking sometimes, but I can't, you know, and there's also a little, a bit of an attitude out there of like, oh, yeah, I like to drive fast and all this, and oh, it's rubbish road safety. But those people have never had somebody killed in a road crash. And, you know, I think... We have to be, for me, just that's what gets me up and go to work every day. It really absolutely drives everything that I do. Yeah, 
Perfect, perfect. Which leads me really into the, the really well into the next question, which is so Matrix IQ is the business that you're the managing director of at the moment. So are you able to tell us a bit more about Matrix IQ, please, Alison? Yeah, well, I'm the, the managing director of the drive division. So we've got the overall company's Matrix IQ uh, and the overall company. We've got a lot of products um, around sort of vehicle tracking telematics, but we do a lot of work with lots of different utility companies for gas escapes is all that. So I would say that's more the kind of technical engineering side of it that um, I don't get involved in because it baffles me. Uh, but the drive <laughs> side is what we like to think of as like the human led side of it. So the drive side's all about looking at driver behaviour. So that's the main thing that, that we focus on, because if you accept that it's drivers that cause crashes, which is the case, then it's about the behaviours of that driver. Um, and it's easy to vilify drivers, but nobody goes to work wanting to have a collision or wanting to hurt somebody. So it's about trying to explain to drivers through education why it's important for them to drive safely. So one of the things that um, we do is a, a driver intervention. So collecting data from telematics. Uh, we have our own telematics, but we also are agnostic. So we take feeds from API feeds from most of the major telematics companies, the OEMs or the manufacturers now coming out with their telematics already in vehicles. And we put them back through our algorithms and have create a driver score. Um, and our intervention team actually call drivers on behalf of companies. So we, we do the calls, build a relationship up with the driver, talk to them about particularly speeding and harsh braking events, which are the two that tend to lead to crashes. So it's, you know, following too closely, speeding. Um, and we build up a relationship with those drivers over a number of months. So it's not like they don't see it as a, a punitive thing. It's not the company saying you stop speeding. It's about us saying, look, we just want you to get home safely at the end of the day. And we want everybody else on the road to get home safely. Uh, and we build up really good relationships with drivers. Uh, and we kind of intersperse that with some online behavioural safety training, which again, you know, it's you can put a lot of training in place that just doesn't work. And I think skills training for drivers, unless they've had a number of similar collisions, most drivers know how to drive. It's just getting them to make the decision to do it properly every time they get behind the wheel. So we have an academy where we do um, various topics sort of drugs and alcohol, speeding, fatigue, all those sort of things. And they're just really short courses every 90 days with a little Q&A after. And it just keeps in that driver's mind that safety thing that, you know, the company are bothered. And if the company are bothered, then maybe I should be bothered. Because if you give the keys to somebody who comes to your company to work and you don't do a driver induction and there's nothing at all about the performance behind the wheel, why should they care? Because they don't believe you care. So it's something they can forget about. So we'd have that like really personal um, contact with them. And we also, because we're agnostic and we can take feeds of data from other um, telematics companies and OEMs, we can work. So we work with the insurers and we work with leasing companies because we can take all that information from various systems. And I know even at some of the big fleets that I've had, we've had so many legacy systems where we've taken on different companies but it allows us then to put everything through normalize it and you can actually see a risk score 
right across the the board and i know we we kind of touched on this when we chatted um the other week about perceived risk as opposed to actual risk and i think that's really important particularly you know any fleets out there who are going for a renewal for insurance and things most insurance premiums are based on collision history so if you've got a poor collision history and you go for insurance that's all they'll look at but if you can actually show that this is where we are now and this is how our drivers are driving that's your risk profile that's where you are at that point in time so it's not looking at where you were three years ago you know it's looking at what you've introduced and how that's made a difference which won't show in your collision rate straight away but you can show a steady improvement in driver behavior score so that's your actual risk as opposed to kind of the traditional i guess perceived risk yeah i love this concept of actual risk and, and perceived risk as well it's something that really interested me when we were speaking before because with a young daughter, a young, well, my eldest daughter, actually, she's going to be learning to drive soon. And we're looking at things like black boxes and insurance yeah. and things like that, right? So, you know, with a black box, please excuse the dog. I hope she stops in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but she's she's a bit frustrated. Um, so, yeah, and, um, you know, we're looking at black box and, you know, she's going to be a short insured accordingly. And I'm learning that, you know, she'll get interventions, like you're saying, if you know, if she does behave or drive in a way that, um isn't within the spirit of what what they're looking for then she can get the insurance stopped yeah. you know i was, I was learning from a, a, a similar friend and i was just thinking do you know what like we've got we've got this tech right we've got this tech already we've had it on trucks for years you know i taco marsh was one software that i use for taco analysis and it's got a management report in it where i can look at harsh braking and acceleration please excuse the dog <laughs> and um she, uh, you know, and we, you know, we we see those things, but I think in reality, very few transport managers are doing anything with that data. I think that's that's the case, but I, I also think that even with transport managers, you can't expect them to do anything if they don't have the kind of in tools to do it. Um, so you can look at data, and you can have people in and have a bit of a chat with them, but if you don't understand how. To engage that driver or, or how to explain why it's important that it's very difficult and i think you know there's also that i might be a transport manager for 10 drivers pete i go down the pub with every friday kids play football together john not as keen on him sport different teams you know he sports man united i sport leeds which is obviously that great area there. Um, oh, we don't like him. <laughs> exactly but how will i will i be fair and equitable with those two drivers. So if I start finding that there are events, am I going to say to the guy that I'm not so friendly with, you know, be more harsher with them and you've got to improve it, and then say to the other guy, oh, just try your best, mate. You know, we've got to... That's where that dis complete disparity between how you're dealing with people comes. And I think that, you know, everybody's human. Transport managers have so much on the plate. And I think since COVID... One thing I noticed um, during lockdown, were coming out of lockdown, how many people who'd been transport managers and compliance managers were on LinkedIn looking for work. And it seems to have been that it was an easy position to get rid of, you know, through furlough, or this is an easy one to get rid of, which clearly it isn't. And, and the skills then, the skills base dissipates. And I think then there are people, you know, we have people all the time coming to us at Fleet Mobility Live 
we've got like an ask, ask the expert booth saying, oh, I'm an HR director. I was off for two weeks and when I came back, I'm in charge of the car fleet. What do I do? And I think that, you know, that's not unknown. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of information there. And even if you you haven't got telematics, there's a lot internally in a vehicle that is available. And I remember um, Paul Kesey, who was one of the kind of more senior traffic policemen in the, the West Midlands, I think he, he was based, saying to me, not knowing isn't an excuse because mm -hmm. there are there is information you can get from that vehicle. So saying, well, we don't have telematics, so we didn't know, absolutely will not be looked on as an excuse. Certainly wouldn't in my court, I would definitely not not get that as a you know as a reason for not doing anything. People need to be aware of of these things, and uh, yeah. So I think we need to use the data that's available to us. Yeah, absolutely. That you just reminded me of uh, Mark Cartwright and his thing around vans and trucks being you know run by the traffic commission the expectations because they fall under a different type of licensing that they run to different standards it's interesting what you say there about um people from other disciplines or professionals from other disciplines who pick up fleet in some businesses yeah. I, I understand it from an hgv point of view and i often approach things from an hgv head because that's the world i operate in but actually, there's a lot of fleet people out there who who aren't from the professional, aren't potentially CPC holders. So, yeah. and and people will be quite surprised listening to that. I literally the, the podcast I recorded yesterday was with a chap called James McPherson, who's absolutely brilliant, and he's got a podcast called Rebranding Safety, and he's a safety professional that's looking to, you know. He talks more about people than policy and process. It's more about people and making sure, you know, uh, we've got the right culture and things like that, safety culture. Fa fascinating, fascinating uh, interview. And we, we've had three interviews. So I, I did a quarterly co-host. That's so like one a month for, for the past three months. And it was the last one uh, yesterday that we recorded. And um, I, I don't, if it seems like I'm being a little bit big headed and I'm absolutely not. But what he's saying is it's the first two that he had out of all of the guests and uh, previous guests and he's had some people with much bigger following than me for example but he had a lot of feedback about the fleet stuff and what, what he was being told was he's got a lot of safety people out there listening to his podcast that are picking fleet up with no knowledge yeah and they don't really understand it and that that sort of reiterates your point where i think a lot of people are streamlining and they're bringing in hr and safety and that to sort of manage fleet and all of a sudden oh god what do i do you know so it's um you we've got professional people i think professional people who know they want to do the right thing and operate a safe fleet but actually need the support to do it and and, and obviously your uh, drive product is I, I don't know whether you would call it a product or a service it's essentially both i suppose it's a book, but yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and and and, and supports that so one of the questions i've got for you and i know i know this won't be the case but i think i'm going to address because listeners would be like well i'm not sure about this because they lose the control of the conversation do you get a bit of pushback like all big brothers watching because i can you know having done years of driver cpc i can imagine that's what drivers would say so t tell me a bit about that because i'm sure you your people on the phones manage that situation really well but it'd be good just to understand sort of how, how you've come across that yeah well i think most fleets that we deal with have already got some sort of telematics in them um <laughs> or we you know we might be coming up for another tender for replacement but i think most most fleets now have some sort of data gathering in them um and actually kind of almost the opposite of what you said is true because that has been taken away from the company 
and put to us, drivers respond really well because it is that conversation, as I said before, about making sure you're safe, not about how we can discipline them. And it's not about that. Um, and I think the thing that kind of probably emphasises that more than anything is what good relationships we've got with the unions for the people that we deal with for that exact reason. They see it's fair, it's equitable. There can't be any personal reasons behind any of it because we don't know these people. We don't work with them. We don't know anything about any other aspects of the, the working life. We're just talking about being safe. Um, and we, you know, we have that conversation. I'm not saying we never get a driver that that asks us all these questions, but the answer is always, why would you not want to be safer on the road? Because you want to go home to your family. And actually, you know, look at the size of all the fleet and all the drivers. Your friends, families, loved ones are all on that same road. So why would you not want everybody in your fleet to be driving safer? You know, it, it's a it's a life skill as well. It's I remember when so when I was at a, a company doing fleet complaints, actually at the company, somebody's wife rang me um, and said, I just want to say thank you. Because this driver, I, you know, I had to have him in. We had a chat. His speeding was like unbelievable. And obviously, because he was being, we were talking to him about it, he was coming down and down. She said, he's so much nicer to drive with now. Because he'd taken that into his life, his personal life as well. Once it kind of got there and he thought, actually, this is the way to drive properly. So I think it's about that. It's about it being a life skill. You know, it's not Big Brother's watching you. It's why would we not want you to be safer? Because nobody would say that if they were up scaffolding or somebody's watching me and making my way high is why they're doing that. You just accept it because it's part of health and safety. And this is no different. You know, your vehicle is your workplace when you're driving. And it's a work activity. Absolutely no different whatsoever. Yeah, nice. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I know for one thing, my wife was very happy when I learned to drive uh, properly in an HGV because <laughs> when I when I drove before, she would always forever moan at me for tailing tailing vehicles too closely. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'd have, been, I'd have been on your hit list. That's for sure. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. So with an HGV, because one of the things that I would kind of put out there for people to think about is Firstly, don't conf don't confuse safe and legal because they're not the same things. You know, we've got now, we don't have to do B plus C training. Is it actually safe for somebody to pass the test in a Renault Clio and then suddenly get in a van and tow? Of course it's not, without any additional training. Absolutely not. And I would say, you know, if you look at HGV, so obviously taking the sort of EU rules, if you look at driving hours rules, why is a driver any more or less fatigued? because of a bit of legislation that hangs over the head. So if you look at your HGV fleet, you're really, you know, hard on your driver's hours, making sure that people are compliant with it. But your van drivers are doing 12 hours a day. How can you look at those two things equitably? It's no more tiring driving, a, driving an HGV than it is driving a van. And I think we need to really start to think about not can I, but should I? And I think, you know, yeah. that's... That's just something, and particularly with that, the towing, you know, we've got a lot of companies who were going to sort of stop the training and then we had a chat and they said, of course it makes sense. Why are we even thinking about it? You know, it's a retrograde step. It actually puts safety back quite right. You know, it, we need to be doing that. So, yes, yeah, so it's just that little thing with me about 
let's try and look at them in the same way in terms of safety. Hi, it's Pete from Flagship Partners. We're proud to sponsor a Half Dozen Things podcast. Flagship Partners help their clients become safer, greener and greater through a range of consultancy and training services. We offer audits through to risk assessments, contracts through to support with managing your culture, all the way from mandatory training through to management training as well. So if you need any support, please do get in touch with Flagship Partners today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and and it's very true, particularly now. You know, someone can pass their test, like you say, in a, a little Fiat Punto. I don't know what the current small cars are, but a Fiat Punto, <laughs> that's probably sounds about that's right. About right. Um, yeah, Fiat, I was going to say a Fiat Cinquecento, but that takes me back to the in-betweeners. Um, but, yeah, someone can pass it. Someone can pass in that. And then, and then, like you say, go out and drive a Transit with a digger on the back of it. Yeah. on a trailer literally one to the other without any training legal perfectly yes. legally but not yeah. safe yeah, yeah. and, and actually uh... even even if drivers aren't towing we in terms of sort of um we do van familiarization so where particularly mm. apprentices have done their car test passed the car test as part of their apprenticeship we then do a full day van familiarization training because the center of gravity you can't look out of your, your, you know, your mirrors properly. It's completely different. But uh, to just say to somebody, oh, you've passed your test now, take that van out, even without towing, it's a completely different ball game. And I think, you know, we need to be just a little bit more aware of that. Should we be doing this rather than yeah. can we be doing this? Definitely. I've just had a flashback to the first time I drove a long wheelbase sprinter and I massively cut a corner and nearly took a pedestrian out because I hadn't allowed allowed enough for the wheelbase so yeah you're absolutely absolutely right okay brill so just if hopefully what we've been talking about with the drive with the drive service has been has piqued listeners interest so um one of the things that i just wanted to sort of cover off a bit more about the product and, and and that before we move on is it doesn't matter what telematics or tracker you've got in the system obviously you do have your own like hardware that you can install but if people have their own hardware you can still process that data and normalize it is that that's correct yeah yeah and um at the moment is it predominantly operators directly or is it insurers and you know are you seeing like a demand increase from insurers and brokers for this kind of you know real risk rather than perceived risk this is this is certainly it feels like it's the right way to go for the industry yeah. from a data driven point of view um are you able to just sort of explain that a bit more yeah that? so i think uh, traditionally we've dealt directly with fleets so we've been very mm-hmm. operational um obviously i'm from an operational background as well so i always want to kind of you want to keep that that touch and, and understand what's going on in the in that part of the industry i would say probably well, about 12 months ago, we started dealing with some of the new insure tech companies. So insurance is, I believe, changing direction. And I think it will be very, very different if we look at, if we're talking about this in another two years, where insurers are looking at all the, the telematics products and all the data that's available and actually asking the question about this real and perceived risk of actually what they were doing five years ago the vehicles will be changed the technology's changed it doesn't represent what's going on now so they're very much starting to look at you know how can we price premiums actually based on risk and actually you know have whether that's in a, a rebate 
situation at the end of a period or whether that's actually let's look at let's risk profile before we take you on as a client and let's base the insurance on that and as we've dealt with like one or two it then grows um and i'm work quite closely with Amic as well so you know there's a lot of a lot of insurance interest in it and that same principle moves directly into that lease world of okay so if if you've got a fleet and we're providing your vans and company cars if you're you've got a really good risk program in place should you be paying the same for that van as somebody who we know hasn't got it so in terms of yes insurance will be with a company but your smr cost you know what you're having to do for that vehicle replacing tires you know the fuel usage for the company all these things should form part of that premium and i think it's a much fairer way of doing it and it's just really got momentum so i would say probably this year it's been a lot of insurance um and, and leasing companies that we're dealing with but still with that traditional fleet manager head on because we've got like a, a virtual fleet manager role as well so where if there isn't a fleet manager people can get that consultancy um but it really it's all the same to us it's about using your data but normalizing that data and you're comparing apples with apples because it's really difficult to look at you know every telematics company has different parameters they're completely different what they would call green amber red drivers or however you want to to look at that score but by putting it all in to our algorithms and coming out with a, a normalized score <clears throat> excuse me it allows them to then say oh actually you know we might have thought they were high risk they're not they're high risk and it, it really is that what is happening now what is the risk profile now so that you know that we can do that across the board it, for me it's all the same because it's the same outcome for me it's all about making sure people are, are driving safer but for companies there's a huge financial gain to be doing things properly yeah and i i see that being being it's going to be realized isn't it you know you, we're yeah. going to be insuring based on uh actual you know actual real risk because the data is all there they're going to be able to see uh what, what that is and it's interesting i think it's fascinating that you know you can have a car driver a van driver an hgv driver and essentially you're able to just normalize that performance across across them regardless of what make model uh wheelbase axle configuration it doesn't matter we can get them on a red, red amber green and start to have some meaningful conversations which i think is really great and then like the other plus point for me it, when i put my transport manager hat on i just love that it's independent of of me as the transport yeah. manager that it's a, a service that's there and uh the guys will all guys and girls sorry the guys and girls will know <laughs> That it is that it is you know totally impartial that that you know that, that there's nothing in it for them because sometimes sometimes I know when I have a chat with a driver they're going to feel victimised yeah. <laughs> regardless of how well I try and deliver that conversation they're going to be like oh here's Pete picking on me again <laughs> and um, you know and it and it's not that like you say it's really fair really equitable I think it's a fantastic fantastic service I really do I, I mean we've really also brilliant. you know obviously we have to have escalation points so if we were engaging with the driver and not getting any any engagement back from them over a number of weeks then there's usually an escalation point uh, back into the company because obviously we can only do so much if people aren't engaged. I have to say, very far and few between that we, we have to do that. Uh, but interesting, one of our bigger clients, 
when we kind of talked to the union before this was approved by them to go in, they said, well, could that escalation come into our union safety reps? And then we can go to the driver and say, listen, if you don't improve your driving, we won't be able to defend you with management because you've had these chances. We've got this independent company in. So it actually goes through the, the union safety rep is that escalation point because they understand, you know, safety is absolutely paramount above anything else. You know, there are lots of different views on telematics and people having your data and all that. At the end of the day, stopping people getting killed. And nobody really, if you think about it, you can't really argue that point. You know, nobody could justify not wanting that to be the priority. Absolutely. Well, also, you know, the, it's the whole thing. And I guess this kind of leads into my next question about what you do on a part-time basis. But, you know, if if I know, if I have the data available to me and I know and choose to ignore, I'm I'm as culpable as, yeah. as anybody if I'm in a, a position of, a, you know, authority or or what have you in a business. And, and, and I think that's potentially the next challenge to sort of speak to directors and transport because a lot of directors won't even know they've got this data potentially if they don't really deal with fleet on a daily day-to-day -day basis but actually they've got they've got a real duty because the data's there for them and like you say ignorance is not really an excuse the fact that you know we've got vehicles with the data on them we should therefore be utilizing them as part of our people management process and like a people and safety management process so um you know i think i think there's a there's a real duty there to make sure the data's there, the tech's there, we've got to make sure we use it. We've yeah, got to make sure we incorporate it to our systems. Yeah, those very directors are the people who will be under scrutiny because they have got control of that operation. You know, and I wonder, kind of, I don't want to frighten people, but who, who sitting in that kind of director role with responsibility for fleet could say honestly that if they got the knock on the door, one o'clock in the morning, there's been a fatality with one of your drivers. Can you tell me where the driver's hours records are? Can you tell me where the training records are? Can you tell me who could actually point them to it? Because although they don't do that job, mm. would they actually know where to direct the police or HSC or whoever it was investigating, traffic commissioner? Would they understand who had that information and where it's at? absolutely vital that they do because they're in control of that operation um so you know we've done a few a few places i've worked i've done this but i've also done it for a, a couple of other companies where we've gone into a board meeting and they don't know that we're going in um one person usually does because they've obviously sort of sorted out and said right sorry i need to stop the board meeting it's been a fatality um i need to interview you under caution we need to do this we need to do that and everybody panics and then they realise it's not real, but actually still feel very, very under pressure. So you're asking the questions of, well, why do you not know that? Are, is that not, are you not over that? Well, yeah, I am, but I've got a fleet mate. Right. So who's he and what records does he hold and how can I contact him? And it is a bit of a, an eye opener just to, to have that overview. You know, we don't expect a director to be going checking the driver's hours book, but he needs to know that somebody's doing that. And it, so it's all, you know, it's all those sort of things that they just need to have that control over. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know, particularly, and I, I, you know, particularly when it comes to fleet, because there's so many multiple operating centres. Absolutely. Know, so they, you know, you've got this, you've got this remote issue as well, because 
you're not just operating from your one centre, you've got multiple operating centres and everyone everyone might have their own standards of doing things. Um, you know, so I, I'm ju- I am just, I've got in my head a particular conversation with a particular fleet. I'm having a conversation with the safety manager who's trying to tell the directors, look, you've got more responsibility than you realise for these vehicles and we haven't got a group fleet manager. We're talking multiple, multiple operating centres. Uh, on a restricted O license, and uh, the director going, no, it's fine. This is the site manager's responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they've not been providing any training. They've not been providing any guidance. No company policies, procedures, anything like that. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, but and there you go. He he. The safety guys tr- doing the right thing, trying to raise yeah. the thing, and hope hopefully this will be a great podcast to use as a, use as a reference point to be able to help support that conversation as well, Alison. Yeah, and I think I would say, because I think, you know, if I could change one thing overnight, it would be to get rid of restricted licences. Because, again, this, you know, absolute no parity whatsoever between them in terms of responsibility. Why would you not want your drivers to do CPC training just because they're under a restricted licence when they're doing the exact same job somebody who comes under a full UK or license. And I think, you know, we know people who aren't doing that, who look at their restricted license vehicles completely differently. From a safety perspective, if 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 that came to court from a safety perspective, you would be very it would be very difficult to answer the case of so you do safety training with these people in exactly the same vehicles, but don't deem it necessary to do it with these people. Can you explain that to me? And I would find it very difficult to explain that to anybody. Absolutely. No, fantastic. Okay, so now it leads me on to, are you able to tell me a bit more about what you're doing your part-time, in your, in your spare time, Alison, when you do get some spare time? I'm guessing you're pretty busy. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, I mean, luckily, work are, are very good and allow me the time to do it. But um, I've been a magistrate since 2004. So uh, quite a long time now, originally at Preston and, and now where I live in Swansea. Um, really enjoy the traffic courts, obviously, because uh, I know that some of the uh, some of the advocates don't look very happy when they come in for a traffic court and I'm sat there <laughs> because they are. Oh, well. um, so, yeah, so I've done that for a long time. And I think, you know, that's full criminal court. So it's any case, it can be anything from sort of major starts in magistrates you know, down to the kind of speeding events and things like that. Um, I always wanted to to give something back. So it's something that I started doing quite early on. But it is really interesting, particularly with the traffic ones, because you do see the mindset of certain certain people. And there are, you know, different kinds of different types of drivers, shall we say, in terms of how they they think about driving. Um, and yeah, I think the two work hand in hand. So it it kind of it helps me do my job and my job helps me do that in, in many ways. So um, I really enjoy it. You know, I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do. Um, and I, you know, like I say, I've been doing it quite some time now. Yeah, I, I, I've muted myself because the dogs were off on one again. Um, <laughs> so they've just quietened down just for a moment, which is good. Um, I hope hopefully they'll stay that way. It's really interesting, actually, that we were speaking a couple of weeks ago as i've sort of alluded to earlier in the podcast and interestingly i'm really bad on facebook because i'll i'll have come up we, i live in peterborough so i get the peterborough news come up on my facebook wish they'd shush. and um the 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 news comes up and it says you know somebody has been sentenced or suspended sentence for but we had one recently where 
uh, a, a parent or a step parent had really hurt a child, like a little baby, and that's just from this sentence. And I was just like, it blew my brain. So um, obviously, at how short it felt, it didn't feel fair, if that makes sense. Have you got? I know you've got a much better insight to me than me, this keyboard warrior on the back of Facebook going, <laughs> this sentence, you know, what's happening with crime and punishment? You know, we need to get a bit harsher. For those people who feel the same way, and I'm sure many do, and I'm sure sometimes you probably do yeah. as well, but what, what, what is that? What is it in the system that is sort of preventing you from potentially being able to give harsher, harsher punishment to people? So we work under um, quite strict sentencing guidelines, and although they are guidelines, not tram lines, so we can go a little bit beyond if there are reasons. Um, so that's all set out. That's set out, you know, by um, uh, government. So we have to stick within those guidelines. There are also a lot of um, kind of complexities that people, you know, you read the headline, and it's kind of the typical you know, red tabloid type headline. But what isn't always in there is all the nuances that have happened in that. So there might be aggravating factors that allow us to go beyond our sentencing um, guidelines. There are sometimes some factors that, that take you below that because there might be some, you know, factors that actually are extenuating, some extenuating circumstances. Um, you are right that there are times that I, it is very frustrating for me, you know, and for all of us. I think the thing is, as well with um, suspended sentences particularly, just sticking somebody behind bars doesn't mean that they are less likely to offend when they come out. We know that for absolute certainty. Whereas quite often when you do suspended sentences, there are things that people have to do. So they have to go on various courses, sort of anger management or whatever that might be. So actually, I think sometimes that suspended sentence, a, it's a sort of Damocles because they know if they get any other offence, whether it's similar or not, within that period, they're straight to jail. But it does allow them to be able to do things that actually might stop them reoffending because it either changes the way they think or they understand more. You know, so I think although it can be frustrating, I do think sometimes you are making a bigger difference to society by keeping somebody out of jail and giving them actual training and awareness and education. Um, so it, it it is difficult. It is difficult. And I think, you know, I'm sure people do struggle. And I, you know, see a lot of the keyboard warrior stuff. I don't think any of it's been from you, but it might be. No, um, <laughs> look, not unless you're looking think... at Peter, bro. I'm very insular, very insular. <laughs> yeah. Just in Peter, bro. So if you think, you know, we might have a, a full day trial and it might have like two column inches in a newspaper. Yeah. So all the complexities and everything clearly aren't going to be in that that article. But um, but yeah, don't do anything wrong. You won't go to prison. That's all I'll say, Peter. So just a little uh, no, advice for you there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, Alison, it, I, I, it's, the, it's always a funny thing I refer back to on the podcast. My, my dad was a policeman of 30 years, so I grew oh. up with a policeman as a father. Uh, he's a retired police officer, and he was old school, and I mean old school. Like, we literally had key rings, like... Crime doesn't pay, and if you can't do <laughs> if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. And you know, literally, like I I I I grew up scared of putting a foot wrong. Trust me, uh, he was. Um, no, hopefully, hopefully, he'll listen to this and be chuckling away. But it, it was a great. Well, 
I can't can't rate him enough, but he certainly kept me on the straight and narrow. He had some fantastic sayings, things like manners make the man. Yeah. How how great, how great a sayings that, you know, and, and just things that little sayings that I sort of live by from day to day. So yeah, and I guess it's interesting because I've ended up in I, I always said I didn't want to be a policeman. Um, but at the same time, I guess I've kind of ended up in Similar, this yeah. sort of influential, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this influential type type role where um well you know hopefully hopefully i'll do my bit to have an impact and, and have some purpose as well so um yeah no absolutely but yeah they're, they're, they're proud of me old man but yeah i i, uh, I, I worst thing genuinely i don't think i could think of a worse punishment than even actually being in a courtroom i think just the thought of that with me being on the wrong side of it for me that is almost like mortally like i couldn't think of anything worse genuinely and then to actually go to prison my god I couldn't no, even imagine. I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. I find that terrifying, genuinely terrifying, and not so much because of the people that I'd mix with, but just the the loss of freedom. I think I value yeah. I value freedom. I value freedom. Yeah. I value getting up in the morning and being able to spend time with the family and do stuff and absolutely. have that have that taken away. I think, God, it just makes me think. I don't. I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, it is about consequences, isn't it? And that's that all fits in with what we've been talking about. So that the consequence of you going to jail is you're not there for your kids growing up. You're not there to help with the parenting, Mm -hmm. all those sort of things. And that's the same, you know, with the the whole driving thing. It's about them understanding the consequences. So the consequences Mm -hmm. of you being involved in a collision might be you lose your license, you lose your livelihood, you lose your home because all Mm -hmm. that's connected it might mm. be that you actually end up in court because there's this dangerous driving or careless driving involved. That all these things have consequences. And I think understanding, thinking about those consequences before you say get behind the wheel when you've had a drink or get behind the wheel when you've taken drugs. I think that's what people don't do enough of, that thinking about those consequences right through to the the kind of end point. Yeah, it's it's really hard, isn't it, with you know, it brings in that thought process for me around complacency and how complacent we get because people drive every day. We all drive every day. Yeah. The roads are hustling and bustling and people are addicted to their phones and they can't stop bloody looking at them and, you know, all of that sort of stuff and people get really complacent. And then, you know, you have a hard-hitting conversation like this and hopefully people will be in their cars and listening. But uh, it's not just the consequence of prison. Could you imagine the consequence of living with something that you may have done to someone else, even if you don't, even if you don't have that punishment and you know in your heart of hearts that was down to a lack yeah. of concentration and you know you could have done something differently and I think I think people often need to think about the responsibility they've got for others around them when they get behind the wheel that's yeah. um you know that's and it really, isn't really about important. whether it was your fault or not because one mm. of the things as well I really kind of would another message I, I would really like to get out there for people who do investigation of collisions is we tend to look at things as non-fault or at fault and we need to start looking at them as avoidable and non-avoidable because actually at the end of the day pointing the finger doesn't help us to stop that happening again and I think you know it might not have been your fault because somebody ran a child ran out from two parked cars but was it avoidable well yeah because if you'd been concentrating more slowed down and been aware of this parked cars street where there are children on so you know it's, it, it, there are differences that it's about could we have stopped that happening and how do we stop it happening again and sometimes pointing the finger isn't the way to do that necessarily 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely spot on. Um, final question then. Final question, I think, before we sort of wrap things up, and that is, what do you see? What do you see for the future of fleet and the transport sector and and safety and road safety, that kind of thing? What what's what's your insight for what's coming? I think so. There are several kind of big point. I think EV moving towards EV for twenty thirty is a big one. Um, and I still think a lot of people have got their head in the sands and thinking, oh, it's a long time off. Because it's not just about getting the vehicle, that is about a big behavioural change for drivers. And that's something that, you know, you need to work with your drivers about. It's not just about the refuelling either, it's about how they handle, it's about what happens when they're involved in a collision. More important that you get your drivers behaving properly when they're behind an EV, because it's so much more complicated to, you know, that we're talking to, we mentioned Mark Cartwright before, um, obviously it's for national highways now, um, and I sit on one of the groups he is looking at reducing van collisions. Putting all electric vehicles involved in an incident, you can't just drag it off the carriageway. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that we need to be aware of. It, it's going to be probably your lead time for your sales, you know, your repair and maintenance is probably going to be longer because we're going to be less technicians. So I think that's a real biggie. And that's not about frightening people because we are moving there and quite right we're moving there. But be aware of all the nuances around that. It's not just about getting a vehicle. I think the other thing that, not to get political, which I haven't to do, um, but I do think there are some worrying things coming out from government. So I think the BPLC thing, completely the wrong decision to make in terms of safety. I think, you know, the the kind of possibility of removing speed limits from motorways, absolutely yeah, the wrong I, thing to do. I, I, I kind of didn't pay attention to that sensationalised headline. I'm hoping it's sensationalised anyway. Well, but it's what, true and yeah. has been has been put forward yeah. as a possibility. Wow. Um, I know there are other things being discussed in government at the moment that would mean people could drive much bigger vehicles without necessarily having a different license. And I just think, I think we as a transportation industry need to kind of grab it and say, no, do you know what, we're the experts here. We we see what happens, we understand. This isn't about getting a few votes because people like the idea of it. This is about stopping people dying. And I think we need to be like real lobbyists. We need to be real activists and we need to be saying, We've been here a long time. We've seen a lot and, you know, really trying to kind of influence. So that's something that I'm sort of trying to do, but trying to not be political, but it's difficult to, to do the both yeah, at the same absolutely. time. Well, the, the, the drivers at the sharp end, I see them in the Facebook groups, they're dead against it. And it's them, yeah. it's their livelihoods. They're the guys out there day in, yeah. day out for 50, 60 hours a week, some weeks potentially on, on the road, on the road network, and they're going... We cannot have this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're looking at that. We've, we've talked a lot about driver shortages in the past, but make the job something that people aspire to do. Yeah, so give people desirable. proper infrastructure, you know, make the, the restrooms clean and tidy and have a decent choice of food in them. And, you know, there's a really untapped market for, for female HEV drivers as well. And you know, there's a lot of people coming back off childcare and things getting back into an industry that might want to do that job but would i want to be on a lorry park as a female at the moment the dyke the you know the real lit the facilities are poor make it an attractive job because we know from lockdown hell what would we have done without our drivers 
they're an absolutely essential cog to keep the country moving. Let's recognise it, let's pay them accordingly and let's give them the right facilities. And that's one thing that I'm really passionate about, that we need to, you know, look at the drivers and go, do you know what, We where would we be without you? You know, it's yeah, really yeah. important. I think I think the the pay's gone in the right direction, generally speaking. Yeah. I think I think I think the pay's gone in the right direction. It's it's a longer solution to do the infrastructure, but you're absolutely right. I think it's it, it is that, and I think I think that as an industry, we need to be more inventive as well. Like you say, I think I think there's plenty of um, potentially working mums, for example, that could yeah. drive. It's just making sure that we accommodate we can accommodate and be flexible to do to, to do that for them you know yeah. it's um yeah I, I think uh i think it's really vital that we look at those things alison it's been an absolute pleasure it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. How, how quick is that the quickest hour ever gosh it just goes <laughs> i know it just goes doesn't it it's fascinating it it's, it's fascinating but it's been lovely chatting to you and i hope i hope the listeners have uh enjoyed it as well as much as uh certainly i have and alison is it possible for you to just if people want to get in touch, you know, what's the best place to do so? Is it LinkedIn, those kinds of things? Like, yeah, LinkedIn's How, how do you really want people good. to reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn's really good. Or um, the Matrix IQ website, it's got all contact details on. Um, but if people want to kind of directly message me on LinkedIn, that'd be great. Yeah, I can always get back to people and, and have a chat with them. More The more spreading out of information we can do, the better. Yeah, fantastic. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've uh, felt the passion emanating from Alison and I about road safety. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys will think, everyone will think twice when they're behind the wheel and make sure that we're putting the management systems and stuff in place like Drive uh, to be able to help improve the roads, not just for us and our drivers, but for, for the greater good of everyone. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening and uh, I'll see you guys on the next one. Bye. I really hope you loved today's episode and if you did please make sure you subscribe and listen out for future episodes too. Please do share it across your social media channels. We hope to reach more and help more people. If you want to find out more about me, my name's Pete Rushmutt. You'll find me across any social media channel and my business Flagship Partners and we're your partners in success across your business. Thank you. See you again soon.